Welcome to Plodcast, episode 24. Good to have you with uh, with us. Good to have you listening. Um, good to have you sitting there on the other side of this microphone. So, I want to talk a little bit about privilege. Um, and, I, and I want to talk about how privilege became this obnoxious thing. Um, in a previous episode, we talked about social justice warriors and the Gramscian Revolution and the... Uh, uh, the sort of creeping egalitarianism, the leveling, the the doctrine of equalism that has been um, promulgated, that has been that is being uh, circulated by uh, the progressive left, and you can see that this. You, I want to talk about privilege, which is one of the um, um, ways we can see how ma- how many uh, inroads that Gramscian revolution has uh, uh, made. So um, we, we usually run into the word privilege when someone's talking about white privilege, or someone might be talking about privilege when they, uh, they might be talking about economic privilege. Someone is well-to-do, and they, they have privilege. And this approach has gotten so far out of control that some people have begun to, uh, have begun to say things like, if you, if you teach your children math, you are uh, inculcating privilege, and and the, and you're supposed to feel bad about this. You're supposed to feel uh, sick at heart that you are privileging your kids. But we need to turn this completely on its head. We are supposed to privilege our kids. If you if you um, if you marry a woman and you have kids with her and you bring those kids up and you keep your vows to one another you are greatly in you are greatly increasing uh, the odds that your kids have of staying out of the penitentiary all you have to do is stay together right if if you want your if you want your kids to do well and stay out of the penitentiary then step one stay married to their mom and step two make sure they finish high school now, if, some, if, if uh, a kid comes from a family, a household where there has been no divorce, uh, that person is in a privileged position. That person is privileged. If his parents never divorced and he was uh, required to finish high school, or let's say he was required to finish college, and let's say on top of that his... Um, his parents have a decent income and they live in a nice house. And let's say on top of that, that they're white. Are all, are all these things advantages? Are all these things privileges? Do, do these things give that kid, let's call him Tommy, do they give that kid a head start? Do they give him a jump on life? Do they? Does he have a leg up? Is is he in a in better? Is he in a better position than someone whose parents broke up or whose mom has uh, dragged them from one relationship to another? She's now on her fourth husband, and and um, and then on top of that, uh, he's been around drug use his whole life, and he's been around poverty, etc. Uh, does the person from the intact home, etc., have privilege? over against the person who doesn't have any of those advantages? The answer is, well, yes, of course. That's uh, self-evident. That's obvious. 
what seems obvious to people today is that th there's somehow something inherently wicked or something inherently unjust or inherently corrupt about the fact that Tommy has this privilege. Now, if, but, but let's step back and look at this. Do we really want to say that Tommy ought to feel guilty, guilty because his parents kept their vows? They promised to marry, they promised when they married each other to stay faithful to each other. And so they did. Should, should Tommy feel bad about that? Should he have a vague, gnawing sense of guilt? Well, no. What we need to do, absolutely not. Why should I feel guilty as a parent for doing the things that God requires me to do? If God requires me to provide for my own household, and I do, why should I feel bad about that? If God requires me to love my, uh, my children's mother, and I do, why should I feel guilty about that? If God requires me to provide my children with an education, and he does, and I do, why should I feel guilty about that? Of course I should not feel guilty. But we have gotten to the point where all we have to do is level a finger at someone and say, and charge them. You, well, you're, that's just, you're just mansplaining. You, know, you've got the, you have privilege because you're a male. Or you're, you've got a white advantage. You've got white privilege. And if someone challenges you and you are offended by that, then that's white fragility. Well, think for a moment. If there really is a privilege, if there's an objective privilege, as I believe there is, so uh, living here in North America, I have been given uh, many privileges just by that simple fact. So I'm living in North America, not in um, a famine-ravaged country in Central Africa, let's say. The fact that I was born here, the fact that I grew up here, is an, is an enormous privilege. The fact that I'm doing it white means that I don't get pulled over um, by cops the same way, you know, you know the old problem, driving while black. So if, if uh, someone is black and they get hassled more frequently than I would, um, is that something, is that an advantage for me? Is that a privilege? Yes. Um, do I, ha am, am I occupying a better economic class because I grew up in a well-adjusted, happy home. Yes. Um, if someone uh, taught me math, does that give me an advantage? Yes. All of these things are true. Now, but in the Bible, what should I do with privileges? What should I do with the things that I have? Well, Jesus tells us, I think, in the, in the parable of the talents. In the, par in the parable of the talents, he says that... Uh, uh, that the one with ten talents and the one with five talents and the one with one all had a responsibility, and that was to turn a profit. Uh, that means if you if you had a uh, ten talents and you come back with eleven, uh, that's well done, good and faithful servant. If you have privilege, if you have particular privileges, what does God expect you to do with it? Well, He expects you to turn a profit on it. That's what He wants you to do. That's what you're called to do. Um, and you, which is something you cannot do if you simply feel guilty about it. So then, episode 24, we come to our little book review 
uh, section, and I want to talk uh, uh, this episode about Experiment in Criticism, Experiment in Criticism by C.S. Lewis. I don't know how many times I've read this book. I've read a number of books by Lewis repeatedly, and this is one of them. I just finished it uh, a week or so ago, yet again. And um, Experiment in Criticism is uh, a, a really um, interesting uh, intellectual experience, uh, experiment. Lewis says that we ought not to evaluate, we ought not to try to make a list of good books and great books and classic books and then try to scare people away from the, the books that are not on the list and try to herd, herd them toward the books that are on the list. He says, rather, what we should do is evaluate um, books by the kind of readers that those books attract. So there's a particular kind of reading that approaches a book in a particular way. And if a reader approaches a book in that way, then uh, we ought to give that book a second look and say, well, maybe there's something more to it, just um, more to it than I perhaps guessed from the cover or that I guessed from the genre or the category I found it, found it in, in the bookstore. Um, so, for example, just to, there are, he, he lays out a number of different criteria for this, but let me illustrate it with just one and then commit, commend the book to you. Um, what he, he says is basically, if you are using a book as a, as, a, as a prop or as training wheels or as a crutch for your daydreaming, then that's a non-literary approach. You're just All you're trying to do is kill time on the airplane. All you're trying to do is kill time on the train. All you're trying to do is fill up uh, empty hours. And so you, you read the book and it's pleasant and easy to daydream and and what these books are are organized daydreams they enable you to just read it put your mind in neutral just go along with the flow enjoy the sensations and then you put it down and then it's time for another one but and you never and you don't go back to that kind of book after you're done with it any more than you would go back um, to an empty carton uh, after you've consumed the contents of, of, of it. Um, Lewis says a literary reader is someone, if, if someone is reading a book that is a literary experience for him, he returns to the same book again and again. Um, and it's not because he doesn't know what Happens, Of course, someone who can recite passages out of a book knows what happens. Or if um, my wife and I are currently reading uh, aloud in the evenings, we, uh, we're working through the Lord of the Rings again, and we're currently in the Two Towers. And we're, let's say I'm coming up on a section, uh, a surprise twist or a surprise uh, turn. The first time I read it, it was a surprise surprise. The second, third, and fourth time I read it, it's my favorite surprise. <laughs> but how can, how can something be your favorite surprise? You know exactly what's going to happen. You might have the words memorized at the turn. What, what experience is that? Lewis is arguing that that experience, that experience is an experience of, um, uh, it's a literary experience. If you just are, are reading a book and 
one of the characters says boo and you're frightened and you're surprised um and you would but you never go back to that for that same surprise again that was a daydream surprise that was a uh, a different kind of surprise than the kind of surprise that engages the reader in a literary in a particular literary way and so experiment and criticism it's one of uh, lewis's lesser known works it's just uh, very good a lot of pithy uh, asides in in the course of it that are the quintessential lewis i uh, recommend it to you So, hamartiology. The word autia is rendered a number of different ways. Uh, when it refers to objectionable behavior, as it, as it sometimes does, the context helps determine how it should be translated. It is rendered as the accusation that was recorded against Jesus at his crucifixion and nailed to the cross above him. So, in Matthew 27, 37 and in Mark 15, 26. The word autia there is accusation. When Festus is talking about the case he inherited from Felix, he refers to the accusation made against Paul. That's in Acts 25:18. And then later in the chapter, when he's talking to Agrippa about it, he uses the same word to refer to crimes, uh, quote-unquote crimes, in Acts 25:27. And Pilate says, and he says this three times, that he found no fault in Jesus, no outia in Jesus. John 18, 38, John 19, 4, and John 19, 6. So, this is obviously a general term, and the normal use of it in the New Testament refers to those false accusations which false hearts love to deliver. False accusations which false hearts love to deliver. This is an important um, thing for us to note in the in the bible jesus is the defense attorney if anyone sins we have an advocate with the father uh, jesus christ the righteous it says in first john so if anyone sins we have an advocate we have a public defender we have a a, a defense attorney in jesus uh, and then in revelation 12 the de- the devil or the dragon or satan um, is thrown down from heaven by michael and his angels and the devil is identified there as the accuser of the brethren who accuses them before God day and night uh, before the throne. Accusation is the devil's native language. Accusation is the devil's native language. Uh, and also, uh, we're, we're taught in the New Testament that when the devil lies, he's speaking his native language. So we put those two together, you have lying, accu- lying accusations. Now, this is interesting. Now, I, I, I believe that both being a public defender and being a prosecutor are both lawful uh, vocations, lawful callings. And if a Christian is involved in uh, one of them, it, he ought to do it well and he ought to seek to do it to the glory of God. But I think there is something curious here, and I'll just leave you with this thought. If, uh, let's say you had a, a kid at, um, at your church who was graduating from from law school and you were chatting with him after church and he's going to graduate in May and you ask him as people are want to do um, so what are you going to do after you graduate if uh, if he said something like well I've got uh, I've got a job offer from the public defender's office and I'm going to intern there and and I may uh, 
wind up becoming a public defender. Uh, the chances are pretty good if he if that conversation happened a hundred times. Oh, I'm going to work for the public defender's office. Uh, a majority of the time, uh, the Christians who got in, got this information would be concerned about it. They might say something, or they might just worry about it. They might just pray about it. Oh, how can he? How can he, as a Christian, go work for the public defender and defend guilty people? But if that same person said, "Oh, I'm looking at a job with the prosecutor's office. I want to work for the prosecuting attorney." Um, Oh, they say, oh, uh, good, lock the bad guys up. Uh, let's. <laughs> As I just think it's curious that the office of prosecutor in the in the cosm in the cosmos that office is held by the devil, and the office of public defender, um, defending people who don't deserve to be defended, defending people who are guilty, um, is what Jesus does, and we are concerned sort of reflexively concerned about the person who wants to defend and we are reflexively not concerned about the person who wants to prosecute. Now, like I said at the beginning, there's a way of prosecuting that could be uh, righteous and good and holy. And, of course, there's a way of defending the guilty that is uh, distortion of justice also. But we need to remember that Jesus is a defense attorney and the devil is a prosecutor. That has to be in the equation somewhere. God in the time of the sickness, God in the doctor too. You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.